Welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I'm recording this as some of our universities are partially reopening, so let's see how that goes. Our topic for today is ethnicity and empire. It's a big topic. And we're going to be looking comparatively at Byzantium and China. By way of introduction, let me make the following methodological distinction. So there are roughly speaking two ways that we can study textual evidence uh, about ethnicities in ancient and medieval societies. One approach would be to take the text as historical evidence for the sociology or political history of a particular ethnic group, the way it was perceived by others and by itself. And the other approach would be to see what kinds of rhetorical strategies are being performed by the texts that discuss those groups that may, in the end, have very little to do with those groups themselves. So I'll give you a classic example, or a classical example. Uh, Tacitus, the ancient Roman historian, wrote a work called the Germania, which is about the culture and the peoples who inhabited ancient Germania, from where the modern name Germany comes from. Well, so there are two ways to look at that text. The one is to read it as evidence for the groups, tribes, or cultures who lived uh, in that region, and and Tacitus gives us some evidence about that, uh, which we should obviously read critically. Uh, Nevertheless, it can be used as historical, uh, as the basis for historical reconstruction. And the other approach is to say, well, Tacitus seems to be using the Germans as a kind of mirror in which to talk through inversion, about Roman society. And so Roman society of his time is certainly far more sophisticated and advanced in all kinds of ways compared to the Germans he's describing. Nevertheless, he uses the Germans as a kind of rhetorical foil by which to highlight also certain vices of Roman society. So it functions as a kind of vehicle of indirect social critique, allowing the Romans to see themselves in this mirror that they're not used to doing. And ancient ethnography functioned that way uh, to a considerable degree. As an intellectual exercise, it had been doing that since the time of Herodotus, uh, who, who, who does the same thing. This is not to say that there aren't real Germans and there aren't real Persians or Egyptians or whatever. It's just that when they start to get processed through these texts that have a certain intellectual purpose, or a rhetorical purpose or political purpose, we're beginning to see those used um, as a rhetorical instrument. So for example, in Byzantium, we often have, say, preachers um, talking about how much more pious those barbarians are, or how much more pious those ancient Greek heathens were, or, or even the Latins, when it's understood that everybody thinks the Latins are wrong about some fundamental issue. Nevertheless, it's a kind of rhetorical statement to say, well, they at least honor their own religion and look at you all. You, you, you come to church late or you go to the hippodrome or you, you, you hit on the girls in church and things like that. So that's, a rhetor- that's using the other as a rhetorical strategy. Conversely, you have Procopius talking about Justinian as a barbarian. Right? Now, Justinian did not belong to any group that Roman society of his time identified as barbarian. 
that's just a way of delegitimating him as an emperor and talking about his habits as uncouth and his rhetorical style wasn't very good and so forth. So let me give you some background on today's discussion, which is exceptional, even unique um, in what I hope to be accomplishing in, in the podcast. And it came together through an unusual set of circumstances. So back in the before time, <laughs> in the long, long ago, the Center for Historical Studies here at Ohio State um, had invited me to join in a discussion of ethnicity in Byzantium and China uh, between myself, uh, speaking on the basis of my book on Roman land, which is on ethnicity and empire in Byzantium, and the book by my colleague at Denison University, Xiaoyun Yang, The Way of the Barbarians, Redrawing Ethnic Boundaries in Tang and Song, China. Um, and the moderators were going to be Ying Zhang, a colleague of mine here at Ohio State in history, and Greg Anderson. Ying works on uh, medieval and early modern China, uh, currently on the Ming Dynasty. Uh, Greg is an uh, ancient Greek historian. That was canceled for reasons that you might imagine. But in the meantime, I had begun to do quite a bit of reading on the history of China, which I knew in very, very rough outline. And as I began to delve into the details to try to understand the background for Xiaoyun's book, uh, we began to correspond, and we met, and I had lots of questions, I pestered him with questions, and I began to gain a kind of glimmer of an understanding of how the Chinese material works. It is, as you might imagine, a very daunting area to get into. And the more I learned, the more daunting it became, uh, but also the more fascinating. And so I continue to add readings on uh, ancient and medieval China to my uh, regimen and occasionally will shoot off a, a confused e uh, email to Xiaoyun. Um, and anyway, we've, we've had an interesting correspondence. During the course of all this, I thought that it would be interesting to reconstruct the dialogue that we might have had uh, had that meeting taken place back in uh, April. And I thought we could just do it in a podcast format. And I invited uh, Ying to moderate that. And the result is what you're about to hear. A note before we start, and I'm going to take you back for a minute to the two different methodologies that I mentioned at the beginning. There's a little bit of an asymmetry in our two book projects and our approaches to ethnicity in the sense that my book was primarily more about the ethnic groups of the Byzantine Empire. Who were they? What conditions did they live under? How were they treated differently for not being Roman? And so forth. Whereas Xiaoyun is um, doing more of a critical reading of the sources that talk about barbarians, uh, primarily in Tang and Song, China, and trying to understand the rhetorical strategies that they were performing within the politics of, um, uh, of Chinese culture, um, you know, riven as it was between Confucianism and Buddhism and, and so forth. So that barbarians are a kind of way of talking about contested ideals within Chinese society, not always about you know, actual barbarians and foreigners. Uh, but we, we sort that all out in the discussion, um, as you will see. I had a tremendous amount of fun recording this. Um, I, and I want to thank um, Ying and Xiao Yun for agreeing to do it um, and for doing it so well. Um, I hope you enjoyed as much as I 
did in recording it. So let's get right to it. Uh, also, a reminder, check out the uh, appearance of the podcast on Medievalist.net. Peter there usually puts up some interesting additional information to go with um, the podcast description. And so here we go. Hello, Ying, and hello, Xiaoyun. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. Um, thank you so much for inviting me here. Hi, Anthony. Good to be here. So, Ying, we're having this discussion because months ago you had approached both of us um, about having a joint conversation on ethnicity in Byzantium and China. Uh, and I, I just wanted to uh, give you the floor to explain what you had read or seen and what you know, what led you to think that this would be a fruitful conversation to, to have. It, it Actually, it has turned out to be very fruitful in all the exchanges that we've had. But can you just set the stage a little bit and explain why you thought Byzantium and China and our books um, could create and foster such a conversation? Yeah, of course. Um, I um, First of all, I really admire both of you for your innovative uh, research on pre-modern times. I am a pre-modern myself. I work on um, early modern China mostly. Um, so I came across your most recent books around the same time uh, last year. I was... Um, I was just reading Xiaoyun's book, The Way of the Barbarian. And then I remember clearly one morning I was cooking breakfast and I was listening to Anthony's podcast and interview about um, your new book, uh, Romaland. And I just thought, wow, this is uh, your, the time period to study overlap. And uh, you're both interested in um, exploring certain um, uh, dynamics and especially the uh, the notion of ethnicity uh, in very interesting ways. Um, so I immediately wanted to just you know bring you together to talk about um, on uh, some of these uh, interesting questions that you explore, uh, especially about ethnicity. Um, and as a pre-modernist myself, I'm always interested in thinking about what we gain uh, uh, by using contemporary Western analytical terms to study pre-modern times and non-Western context. And I also always struggle with uh, using these terms in my own work when I try to describe um, uh, sort of a local phenomena. So, and ethnicity is one of them, and religion and, and culture, um, uh, as you know well. So I, I think your insights on this question and your methodology will really inspire other scholars, especially pre-modernists in many ways. That's the main reason why I thought um, uh, we will really benefit from a, a conversation with both of you. And uh, I think, you know, in today's conversation, we really, I really hope you know, you can especially kind of focus on discussing the concept of uh, ethnicity in your work. Um, and also feel uh, like, um, I'd like the, I also like the kind of, um, the passion and intellectual honesty uh, that uh, shine through your writings, uh, because this is such a loaded term and, uh, I, it's, there are all these challenges using this term in our study. Um, and I like how you um, call upon scholars to critically reflect on how the entanglement of politics and historical storytelling has led to blind spots, inconsistencies, and serious misrepresentations uh, in your work. So um, I really look forward to this conversation. 
Yeah, I guess I should be the one to apologize for all of the terms that uh, my tradition of classics and medieval studies and so on has has littered throughout the world from empire to ethnicity, to barbarians, to culture, (laughs) forcing everyone to use these categories. And if it's any consolation uh, uh, to you uh, who work on the on on the Chinese side of of all of these questions that they're they can be just as oppressive to those of us, uh, you know, even work, working in post-classical societies that sometimes use these terms, but they don't, they did not mean what we mean by them today. Um, so th- there you go. Anyway, um, so let's, ha- sh- shall we start, uh, just maybe give a, give our audience a sense of the, uh, uh, the main arguments that, that we make in the book and some of the key terms? Oh, yes, please. Um, I First of all, yes, I would like to ask you to talk about um, your books, uh, your main arguments, your methodology, and especially um, maybe, you know, after you've introduced the main contents of your book, you can name three key terms uh, or and a number of key terms that help you construct your analysis in your books. So, okay, I'll go first. Uh, so my book is about a period called the Tang Song Transition uh, in Chinese history, which uh, extends from about the seventh century to the, um, the 12th. Uh, and uh, I think, as you can see, the period I'm writing about uh, kind of coincides to some degree with the period that uh, Anthony's book deals with. Um, although it starts a little earlier and ends a little earlier also. Uh, now, the the terms that I think would be most helpful for understanding uh, what I'm arguing in the book are, I think the first one would be ethnocentrism, you know, this idea that uh, the Chinese were superior to all other peoples, um, you know, which is not totally unfamiliar to people who worked in the Greek and Roman uh, classics. Uh, They did it as well. Um, And, uh, you know, after ethnocentrism, then you would have uh, orthodoxy, and moralism. Now, what I'm trying to do with this book is to argue that, uh, you know, this, that the idea of ethnocentrism, the idea of the Chinese being superior and the barbarians being inferior, uh, is used in a lot of texts that I uh, have looked at to make arguments in favor of either orthodoxy or moralism, right? Uh, so using ethnocentric ideas uh, to support uh, pro-orthodox or pro-moralistic ideas. Uh, but that uh, you know these texts in favor of orthodoxy and moralism have often been misunderstood by modern historians because we take the ethnocentrism at face value and we think that they're really about something else, uh, whether it's nationalism or racism or something like that. Can I ask you, before I give my counterpart, can I ask um, to, to say a little bit more about what uh, moralism and orthodoxy might mean in the cultural context of the society you're studying? Sure. So uh, in the context that I'm looking at, orthodoxy really refers to this idea that Confucianism is the only correct uh, value system, the only belief system that really matters and leads to basically um, a good life. Right. So uh, in the period I'm, I, I'm studying, uh, Confucianism coexisted with Buddhism and Taoism as belief systems in Chinese society. And uh, for the most part, the Chinese elite saw them as kind of complementary and compatible, right? There, there was no exclusive, there was no need to choose uh, exclusively between one of the three, unlike maybe in uh, you know, a Christian society where, you know, if you're not, 
if you're Christian and something else, then you're not really Christian. Now, what the uh, the uh, people pushing this this idea, which is relatively new of orthodoxy, uh, are doing is trying to do something like what a, the, the, what the Christians or the Muslims did, which is that you can't be Confucian and something else. You can't be Confucian and Buddhist, right? It's either or, zero sum. Uh, so uh, that's orthodoxy. And, you know, moralism is essentially this idea that the, uh, morality is the uh, measure of all things, right? That uh, if you're not a moral person, then it doesn't matter whatever else you achieve in your life, um, you're still, uh, there's nothing about you that's worth celebrating, right? So that's, uh, you know, that's uh, to a large degree a Confucian idea. So it's not unrelated to orthodoxy. But after orthodoxy becomes a thing, uh, some people who are championing it also push in this moralistic direction. Um, and the idea of barbarism and where we are Chinese or not, right, becomes a part of that rhetoric. I should add orthodoxy to the list of terms for, for which my fuel has to answer for. Hmm. So, the, I, I mean, the, the term, it's a Byzantine term, it, uh, right? So I've, I've seen it before. Uh, yeah. It means something very different in uh, in uh, in Byzantium. So okay. So uh, let me just say what a little bit what I, what I was doing in the book. Uh, so in my book, I'm trying to rehabilitate the idea of the Byzantines as Romans um, in a in a specific ethnic sense, um, and I find that this sense is reflected in in a great deal of Byzantine literature and and the practices of Byzantine society, but has been consistently denied in modern. Uh, scholarship, and not just modern, it has, that denial has a long medieval past. Um, and it's denied in two ways. One is explicit Western denials that the Byzantines were Romans. And those Western denials come from institutions that have their own interest in the Roman legacy, uh, such, such as the papacy uh, and the German emperors. And it comes implicitly also on the modern Greek side, because modern Greek national scholarship and historiography need to validate the continuity of the Greek people. And they, and while I think that's easily done in many areas, they also wanted to do it in a sort of ethnic sense and, and in especially, especially in terms of identity. And they, so they need to turn the Byzantine Romans into Greeks in order to do that. And, and so you have these two sides that are both, both have an interest in denying Byzantine Romanness. Um, so the three terms that I would highlight would be, so first would be Romanness itself. Uh, what does it mean um, when, the, when the Byzantines use it? Uh, why did they call their state Romania, which I translate as Roman land? The second one would definitely be um, ethnicity. That is, by what definition um, can we understand this Romanness to be an ethnic identity? And what are the signs of it in the sources that is if you want to find an ethnicity in medieval sources, what are you looking for? And the third would be empire. And, and this is probably the most problematic term in that it's been used in so many different ways, but rarely defined explicitly. And I, what I was trying to, we always call Byzantium an empire, but there's been no systematic study of what that means. And what I decided to do is take the consensus view among political scientists and historians today, not in Byzantine studies, just in all other fields about what empire means, that is the domination of a number of different ethnic or ethno-religious groups by one, usually through a process of conquest, 
and see whether that fits uh, or when it fits and, and uh, 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 you know, the, the contours of Byzantine society. Um, so yeah, those are my three terms. Okay, great. So um, um, I, I guess we'll, we'll, uh, our conversation will cover some of these um, key terms you both mentioned, uh, but for now, since you just mentioned um, the sources, I guess I would just invite both of you to talk a little bit more about your primary sources and uh, the methodology you um, developed to analyze the sources effectively to achieve your analytical goals in your um, books. And Xiaoyun, would you like to go first? Oh, sure. So uh, my main sources really are um, the writings of a relatively small uh, bunch of elite thinkers. Um, and they uh, mostly belong to one of, of two traditions. Sometimes they kind of overlap. Uh, the first one is this uh, thing that in Chinese is called guan, but uh, uh, could be translated as ancient style writing. Um, and that is a movement, although movement is my, maybe not the right word, but it's a kind of a, a literary uh, tradition that begins in the late Tang period and becomes really big in the song. Uh, and the other one is this thing called Dao Xue in Chinese, but uh, is often translated in English as Neo-Confucianism. So the Neo-Confucian thinkers were basically philosophers. Uh, and uh, they also uh, kind of wrote a lot, but they tended not to think that writing well is as important as being philosophically correct. Uh, now, uh, these are two interrelated uh, kinds of traditions in the Tang Song tradition, but uh, uh, the kind of genres in which you find these writings are somewhat varied. You have classical comment commentaries, commentaries on the classics, you have letters, you have um, prefaces written um, to kind of say goodbye to somebody who's going somewhere. Um, and uh, you sometimes also have recorded oral teachings. Uh, so although the kind of pool of people writing these things, it's not very large. Uh, nonetheless, the kind of the, the, the genres in which they wrote uh, are somewhat multiple. Right, so um, you like to... uh, I'm sorry, Ying. Uh, yeah, so um, so how, how did you analyze these? Uh, is it, uh, did you do like a political, uh, intellectual history or, um, so how would you describe your methodology? Uh, essentially, what I'm doing is intellectual history. Uh, okay. So putting putting uh, ideas expressed in writing in their kind of social and uh, intellectual or ideological context um, and uh, trying to kind of figure out what they're responding to and what they're reacting to. So one uh, tendency when reading the, some of these sources that I work with is to assume that they're reacting to geopolitics, that they are responding to uh, some national crisis or some foreign threat. Um, and uh, what I'm trying to do by contextualizing them differently is to understand them as responding to intellectual debates and intellectual competition, uh, ideological competition, rather than to something that's happening geopolitically. Even if they talk in the language of ethnicity or geopolitics or you know, barbarians versus Chinese, uh, often their targets are not non-Chinese, but actually other Chinese people or Chinese ideas. Yeah, Yun, can I jump in? Sure. Yeah, so I got the impression as I was reading your book that you were that that your authors were engaged in like internal debates 
and even political disputes. And we're using ideas of either ethnicity or, or, or moralism in order to score points against political opponents. But these are like domestic political opponents uh, or rival cultural groups within the, the Song state, right? Rather than like in their, in their writings, like barbarians are a concept that's good to think with. Like it's good, it's a concept that's good to use Right. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely uh, something I would I would uh, agree with. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, the uh, calling calling something barbaric uh, or calling some people who subscribe to something that you don't agree with barbarians, right? Or essentially barbarians, uh, was a very good rhetorical move because everyone basically had the same kind of basic assumption that barbarians are inferior and you don't want to be called one. Um, so uh, what many of these people are doing is really kind of trying to redraw the boundaries of what it means to be Chinese, uh, to exclude certain things that really were Chinese. Like, uh, you know, by this time, Buddhism uh, was seen as very much a Chinese thing, even though it came from India originally. Taoism was always Chinese, but, uh, you know, they would also redraw the boundaries so that Taoism does not belong within the boundaries of Chineseness. So kind of trying to narrow the boundaries of what it means to be properly essentially Chinese or civilized, which they assumed was the same thing as being Chinese, right? Uh, to exclude certain things uh, so that uh, you could elevate something that you believe was important to the same stature as Chineseness, as, as identity itself or ethnicity itself. So it, it's kind of like, if you were to kind of draw a modern analogy, right? Americans fight all the time about what is American, what is un-American. Right. It used to be like communism or socialism was un-American, for example. Some people still think that. Right. Um, or uh, today, some people might say that, uh, you know, being against immigration is is un-American. Right. So if you if you don't welcome Im immigrants to this country, then you're kind of you're even less American than those who want to come in. Right. Uh, that's that's a, a, a kind of rhetorical point that's been made uh, fairly recently, I think. Um, so, uh, you know, in the same way that Americans use this idea of Americanness to kind of drive their debates about what, uh, you know, what is, what the values should be, right? The Chinese were using this idea of barbarism and Chineseness, right, to do the same thing. Right. And when in an American context, you say that something is un-American, it's almost always directed at another American. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like you, you, you rarely say, ah, those Argentinians are so un-American. Like that, <laughs> that just wouldn't occur in normal conversation. Whereas, you know, calling something domestically un-American, that's, that's just, that's very American. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. So the interesting thing is that that kind of rhetoric does occur in Byzantium too. Uh, so you do find in, you know, uh, clearly domestic political disputes, one side calling each other barbarian even though there's nothing whatever about their background or cultural profile that indicates that they're foreign in any way. The Emperor Justinian, for example, is called a barbarian by Procopius because he didn't like him. Uh, so yeah, that, that definitely happens. Uh, but that's not what I argue in my, so that's not what I focus on in my book. Um, so to answer Ying's original question about sources and methodology, um, even though an equivalent book to Xiaoyun's could be written about the, the discourse of barbarism and how it's used to you know, create a sense of either Roman or Christian identity. No, so what I do is something else. Um, what I'm trying, I, I, I pull together a, a, as many sources as I can fit into a monograph 
in order to trace the way in which they use uh, you know, Roman or other specific foreign ethnic groups, or Armenian, Slav, or whatever, in contexts that are as, as unintellectually sophisticated as I can find. That is, uh, in, in ways that reveal how they intuitively um, see the boundaries uh, between such groups, especially in the context of international politics or specifically talking about foreign ethnic groups in the empire. And I pull all of this data together just to kind of show, to try to um, recreate the discourse of, uh, of Romanness and foreignness in Byzantine society, from provincial saints' lives to monastic charters to historiography. Um, and historiography mostly reflects a Constantinopolitan sort of capital perspective, but we're not limited to purely Constantinopolitan sources or just even sources by the elites. We do have some provincial sources um, and they, they all kind of more or less paint the same picture. So I was using those sources in order to create a ethnic inventory of the Byzantine empire and the contours of ethnic difference. Where are they perceived to lie and, and not to do intellectual history um, by, you know, close readings of those sources. I mean, I, I've, I've done that kind of work before, but for doing social or ethno-social history, I think a, a kind of big data approach is, is, is more effective. I guess I would just press um, you a little bit more on this, especially Xiaoyun, uh, because you, um, you said you what you're writing here is primarily uh, intellectual history, but I wondered if what you discussed in this book uh, was actually limited to an AD discourse, or do you also find signs of extensive uh, buy-in from population at large? Because um, uh, I do feel from reading both of your books, uh, Anthony seems to cover a wider range of uh, groups um, and practices. Uh, so would you like to address that question, Xiaoyun? Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question again. Uh, so I, I guess I would have to say that uh, the sources that I use basically cannot uh, give us any indication of sort of broad non-elite buy-in to these ideas of Chineseness and barbarism. That's not to say that ethnicity did not exist in um, Tang China or Song China. Uh, for Tang China, at least, uh, other books have been written that... Um, have shown that uh, it was very much a thing. Uh, that ethnic difference uh, uh, was very, very real and, uh, you know, kind of well understood by people at all levels. Uh, but uh, uh, what we're dealing with here is essentially an elite discourse. This Chinese barbarian dichotomy is, uh, as far as you can tell, not widely used by non-elite uh, audiences or non-elite groups. Uh, they had other ways of defining who they were ethnically or maybe sub-ethnically, uh, depending on different parts of the empire. Uh, but this idea that, uh, of, of, uh, you know, defining yourself as Chinese in opposition to this other generic group uh, called the barbarians really was not uh, something that meant a lot, I think, to uh, people who did not operate on the level of classical discourse. Uh, because this is ultimately a discourse that comes from the uh, ancient Chinese classics. Uh, I mean, they're very self-consciously classicizing 
when they speak in those terms. Uh, now, that's not to say that uh, the elite was, was always elite. In the Song Dynasty, at least, uh, uh, quite a number of people who became elite rose from relatively non-elite backgrounds by taking the examinations for the civil service. Uh, so what we are kind of seeing, I think, although you know, it's never kind of explicitly described as that, is a socialization process where when you want to become elite, you have to start speaking in these classical registers. You have to start talking about barbarians, even if you know, barbarians didn't really mean very much to you as a concept before that. Uh, it's a kind of elite language that you have to learn how to speak. Mm -hmm. I yes, I, I completely agree with you, and I feel like this type of discussion and uh, the efforts to negotiate over the contours of classicism uh, continued um, in the uh, periods after the, um, the centuries that you focus on in this book, um, and it was never settled, and uh, of course you're seeing uh, the massive uh, socioeconomic developments in China in early modern period kind of you seeing uh, clash and uh, even uh, blurring the boundaries between the elite discourse and uh, owner people's practices. Um, yeah, but it's always, it's really nice to see you actually describing how this this very powerful um, uh, uh, discourse was um, established in this period. Uh, and so that scholars in, uh, in other fields who study later time periods can actually engage this in a, in a more accurate way. I think that's a major contribution uh, to the field. Can, can I follow up on what you just said? Sure. So I get the impression that, um, Xiaoyun, when you were uh, reading these sources in a new way, that in the background was a modern misunderstanding of them. In other words, that modern historians had taken those sources and used them and read into them a kind of national consensus on Chineseness and barbarianness at the time, as if this were a non-elite sort of register and understanding of these differences, and that you're rereading those sources as concerned with a slightly different, they have a, a different agenda. And, and you're pushing back against a modern reading of those sources as reflecting a non-elite consensus about Chinese identity. Very much so. So, uh, you know, really this goes back to the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, you know, we have Chinese historians, historians in China, and also Western historians, some of the pioneers of my field here in the U.S., are, you know, using sources like this to make arguments as to what Chinese identity really was about. Uh, was it about culture? Was it about race? Was it about nation? This, these were the three concepts that they tried to kind of, the three pigeonholes that they tried to kind of fit Chinese discourses of identity into. Um, we're talking about a time when if ethnicity was still not part of the conceptual kind of toolkit that we had, uh, that doesn't right. become part of the toolkit until the 1990s or, or so. Um, actually, 1970s or 1980s, I would say. Um, so, uh, you had the uh, you know scholars saying, okay, this proves that the Chinese always thought that being Chinese was a matter of culture, not race. You don't you didn't have to be born Chinese. You could become Chinese by picking up Chinese culture, um, whether it's defined as Confucianism or uh, language or ritual or something else. Uh, and then you had other scholars um, pushing back and saying, no, this this uh, this source that I'm looking at here shows that being Chinese was a matter of nation. Of, of they had a sense of nationalism 
even that kind of song. And then some others would say, no, you know, this other source shows that being Chinese could be a racial thing. Uh, that if you weren't born Chinese, then there was no way you could be Chinese. And, you know, that something about being born Chinese made you superior inherently or biologically to people who are not. Uh, so, you know, the culture versus nation versus race debate just kind of went round and round and round for decades. And, uh, you know, reading all this stuff made me really sick of it because I just felt that it was missing the point of what the sources were kind of about in the first place. Uh, so ethnicity, uh, to some degree, was a way of for me to kind of get away from the culture versus nation versus race um, kind of debate. But uh, for me, it wasn't just ethnicity, it was kind of really using the um, methodology of intellectual history to re-examine these sources and to recognize that ultimately they're not about uh, really defining for all the Chinese what it means to be Chinese. It's really for a relatively small audience of elite Chinese trying to use this idea of you know, this is un-Chinese, this is barbaric, uh, to kind of score rhetorical points, as you said. Mm. So, Anthony, um, can I ask you to maybe say a little bit more about why it is so, uh, so critical that you examine, you historicize ethnicity in your scholarship, um, and what are you hoping to bring to your, uh, your own field? Well, actually, Xiaoyun articulated some of the problems just now, um, because my area has also gone through the same kind of convulsions at, at, at roughly around the same time. In a sense, th this debate over culture and ethnicity and race, I mean, it, it goes back to ancient Greece, too. And uh, there's a famous ancient Greek writer, Isocrates, not Socrates the philosopher, another guy, he's a contemporary, Isocrates. And I find him a pretty mediocre thinker. But anyway, there's this one oration of his where he says that we define Hellenism, that is being Greek, not as a matter of race, like descent, family, right? But as a matter of education and culture. And now, there are many other sources that treat being Greek as very much a matter of family and descent and, you know. And so, you know, modern thinking about identity in the Greco-Roman context has inherited both of those models um, and tends to sort of oscillate between them or, you know, whatever. And so there's a great deal of confusion um, about how you label someone as a Greek in any period or a Roman or you know, whatever. And, and this is especially true for the Byzantine period. So think about it this way. Byzantium is a state that is routinely called multi-ethnic, but there is no scholarship on ethnicity in Byzantium. There was none. Like we're just kind of supposed to know what all the ethnicities that made up this multi-ethnic empire were without anybody ever telling us. Like there was scholarship on individual groups, Armenians, Jews, especially, a little bit Slavs, they're harder to pin down because it's not clear that Slav was an identity that anybody had. Um, and, you know, various other minority groups, Arabs, Iranians, and so forth. But they get proportionately less scholarship. But these are all very small groups. I mean, the Jews in the Byzantine Empire, certainly less than 1%. So where's the majority? Like, it's a multi-ethnic empire with no ethnic majority in the scholarship. So that was weird. 
And another question was, so what exactly counts as an ethnic group? And I found that the default assumption in my field was still kind of racial. Like even in the early 21st century, in other words, or if not racial, at least national. In other words, that there are some groups that by default count as real ethnic groups. These are certainly groups that have their own states today, right? So Bulgarians, Armenians, Jews, like they get preferential treatment as existing as ethnic groups in, in, in the medieval or the Byzantine context. Other groups that no longer exist get really spotty treatment, such as Goths, you know, Pechenegs, these kinds of groups. Occasionally, these are like, you might slum it and go work on the Pechenegs for a while, but you're not going to get any points or awards for it. And then that, that still leaves the majority unaccounted for because Romans is not a group that, well, there actually still are some Romans in in Turkey, but let's not get into that. But they don't have a nation state and they're not recognized as one of the peoples of the world, like the, the Eastern Romans. This is a, always understood to be an artificial label. And so the scholarship was had this kind of bizarre schizophrenia to it where certain groups are real and then the, the center, the majority is just a mix, which is weird. <laughs> Because all ethnic groups are mixes. That's not what makes them, right? Like you would never, because the alternative is for them to be pure. And pure ethnic groups, well, like we're getting into some serious dangerous territory there. But I, like that's the implicit assumption that you, know, you never want to admit it. And so even in the 21st century, there was this idea that there are groups X, Y, and Z. And then there's this kind of mix in the middle that doesn't have an identity. And that's all, that's, that's all wrong. All ethnic groups are mixed. What makes them real is whether they, you know, they recognize themselves as a group, are recognized by others as a group, behave in certain ways. Like ethnicity is a social and historical construct. And I want to look at how the Romans of Byzantium emerged as a group, how they behaved as a group, ultimately how they disappeared as a group because they're no longer around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, before we move on to the um, next part of the conversation, I want to end this um, part of discussion about ethnicity by inviting you to maybe reflect on um, your use of this term, uh, this modern Western um, analytical term uh, in your work on pre-modern or even non-Western context, sort of how you decide to uh, decide to adopt a definite one definition, and what do you decide not to do with the definition, and uh, how how do you avoid some of the pitfalls of using a modern Western analytical term to achieve um, your your goals in the book? Can you just briefly discuss your this process? So uh, let me just uh, try taking a step at that first. So ethnicity is uh, a, a conceptual framework that has gotten more popular uh, quite quickly uh, in my field uh, since the 1990s. 
but it's still contested today. Uh, there will you will find scholars who kind of question how useful it is. Um, uh, so the reason why I have found it useful is because uh, it allows me to avoid uh, having to categorize uh, a discourse as either cultural or racial or national. Um, right. Yeah, uh, ethnicity really can encompass uh, discourses that are a little more cultural in basis or more national in basis or more racial if you want to use the concept of race uh, without me having to kind of like the sort of say it's, it has to be one or the other. Uh, so it's kind of broad and capacious enough and covers enough different bases for um, identity, right? Of its uh, uh, kind of claims of common ancestry or cultural similarity or um, having the same homeland, having the same history, having the same language, um, that you can use it to describe uh, a certain set uh, or a cluster of things that people thought sort of marked them out as different from other peoples. Um, so that's why I use it, uh, but I'm aware that uh, it's subject to multiple definitions and some scholars kind of think it's still too close to nation uh, or to race to kind of like want to touch it or do something with it. Yeah. So in, in working through the, the problem of ethnicity in a Byzantine Greek context, so I think I had the advantage that it's not entirely a modern concept in the sense that there was a very well-developed ancient tradition of ethnography and the ancient Greeks and Romans, under, they had a concept of ethnicity that was not altogether different from the sort of baseline generic idea of ethnicity that is a group that has a name, uh, its own language, customs, religion, perhaps territory, though they can move, uh, social organization. Um, and and uh, I mentioned religion, but they wouldn't have called it religion. They would have called it their gods and rituals. And, and they wrote ethnographies. Uh, and they're not, they're not um, configured in lines that are so different from what a modern ethnographer would understand it, albeit not being professional. Um, so wh when I look at the Byzantine sources, which are using those same models, they just, they just lay it out on the table for me. It's not that difficult <laughs> to do. Um, the problem with the concept of ethnicity, you know, as a developed modern theoretical concept, and, and, and it, it took, this is the problem that took me a, a while to get over, is the idea that an ethnic group has a belief in a shared descent. Right. Not an, not an actual shared descent, right? Just a subjective belief among the group that they are an extended kin group of some kind. And for a long time, I, I thought that one has to use ethnicity in that way. Uh, but the more I read it in the modern theoretical literature, the more it appeared that that's not a an absolute criterion that we have to use, and that there are plenty of ethnic groups that not only practice inclusion, because the Roman tradition is always very inclusive, like groups come in, they become Roman, it, it moves on. And this is in fact how you get Byzantium at all, there's a bunch of Greek speakers in the East who claim to be Romans, like they're not in Rome, they don't speak Latin, they're not, they're not even in Italy, right? So it had to be a concept of ethnicity that was inclusive. And that's why I, um, I had to devote 
not had to, I wanted to, like it was, it was necessary to describe the actual situation, chapters on ethnic assimilation, like how did it work in, in practice? And even some of the state mechanisms, uh, the state actually had mechanisms for absorbing and assimilating groups or individuals. For individuals, it's fairly easy. And sometimes we can even track it over the course of generations. So once I got over that reluctance, that is that the group does not absolutely have to say, we're all descended from our founder, Bizas or whatever. Though they do sometimes say that, but it's not a very consistent discourse. Uh, then everything fell into place and, and it was a lot easier to deal with. So, um, you know, I, I don't know how many scholars today or theorists of ethnicity would would waive that criterion of descent as being absolutely necessary. Maybe a third. I don't know. But, you know, you define your terms in the way that you need to and the readers then decide whether they want to accept it. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Okay. Oh, well, that's perfect. Uh, excellent. Thank you so much for um, for this um, discussion about uh, ethnicity. And I was going to, I mean, another time, I will invite you to talk about religion. Uh, um, but um, maybe we can just... Um, uh, spend a little bit more time on uh, another key term here, umpire. Uh, Anthony mentioned this as one of his key terms uh, in this book. Um, but um, uh, but in both of your cases, um, kind of a narrow ethnic conceptions are commonly juxtaposed to universal ideals of umpire. Um, but I feel like Xiaoyun um, seems not to put umpire at the center of your book, um, although Anthony engages this question very uh, directly. Uh, but but Xiaoyun, we, um, we work on pre-modern China and, and our field just use empire to call our dynasties, uh, not our dynasties, but the dynasties we studied, like the Tang Empire and Song Empire and Ming Empire. And recently we have a brief conversation about whether the dynasty I study, the Ming dynasty, you know, could be considered an empire, analyzed as an empire. So it's, so I, I wonder if, um, if you feel that empire is an indispensable analytical category for the context that two of you study. So, uh, you know, Ying, as you know, we have a kind of strange habit in our field of calling um, the Chinese state a, a dynasty. Uh, you know, a dynasty for us is not just, uh, you know, a lineage of rulers. Uh, you know, the entire state that's ruled by them is can also be called the Tang dynasty or the Song dynasty or the Ming dynasty. Now, uh, some of us in the West have found that a little problematic um, to kind of associate a dynasty with a state, uh, kind of as if they're synonymous. Um, so we've kind of taken to calling, for example, uh, the Tang Dynasty, the Tang Empire, or the Song Dynasty, the Song Empire. Um, but that opens up another can of worms because, yeah, empire is not uh, something that you can just take at face value and take for granted as a category. You have to sort of actually explain what makes it an empire as opposed to some other kind of state, right? Now, of course, the, the safest thing to do is to call it the Song state or, or the Ming state or the Tang state, then you don't have to kind of label it as anything, right? But uh, because all these rulers of China were emperors, so we kind of tend to assume that if you have an emperor, then you have to be an empire, right? Now, Anthony's book, of course, sort of like takes issue with that, this idea that, you know, any state that has an emperor uh, or, or a ruler whose title is 
translated as emperor has to be an empire. Uh, it, 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 that, if that were the case, then Japan would have been an empire for a very, very long time, but it actually really only tried to become an empire in modern times. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the reason why I try not to uh, put empire at the center of my uh, kind of interpretation of my argument is because I kind of want to stay away uh, a little more from this debate that's ongoing over whether Song China was an empire still or whether it had become a national state. Um, now, of course, you know, Anthony's book is really sort of diving deep into that question of whether Byzantium or, you know, the uh, Roman Empire uh, in the East uh, was still an empire or was instead a kind of national state that had an empire at certain times. Um, but, uh, you know, this kind of question in my field about whether Song China was an empire, a, a universal or multi-ethnic empire or a nation state, which is meant to be mono-ethnic in nature, to me, it's kind of like a false start because it's reading the sources that I'm reading in a way that they don't really back up. I don't think these sources are about whether Song China should be an empire or should be a national state. They're really about defining what civilization means. Um, so that, that's a totally different debate, a totally different kind of concept, this idea of civilization as opposed to barbarism, right? So they're not really exploring what ethnicity means, even though they seem on the surface to be doing, doing that. And they're certainly not exploring what empire means. Um, uh, if anything, they're kind of trying to kind of elevate or define a concept of civilization that transcends ethnicity or empire, right? They're arguing that uh, being Chinese is not a matter of ethnocultural uh, practice, uh, just like how you dress or what you eat or how you speak does, is not sufficient to make you Chinese. Uh, the, that the, the kind of the real essence uh, foundation of being Chinese is this other thing that without it, you're not Chinese anymore, right? It's Confucianism or orthodoxy or morality as defined uh, by their terms. Uh, so you can eat Chinese, dress Chinese, talk Chinese, um, do all these other Chinese things. But if you don't have that one thing, then you're not really Chinese anymore, even if you don't know it, right? Without knowing it, you've become a barbarian. And if you keep going down that road, you're gonna turn into an animal at some point, right? That's, that's, that's literally how they speak, right? Uh, are they talking literally that, you know, a human being is going to turn into a, a dog at some point? Uh, no, they're kind of using animality and barbarism as these abstract philosophical concepts for, you know, the antithesis of, of civilization. So let me apologize also for the term dynasty. Dynastia, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is one of these Greek terms that is never used that way in any ancient or medieval Greek text that I know. Um, but, but really, so so in like the Ming context, the term dynasty is used as equivalent for the state? Like um, It meant so many things at the time and people had different understandings of the Chinese um, term for, well, what we translate as dynasty. It could mean the ruling, uh, the ruling house, the lineage, the ruling house, leaning, uh, the ruling house, and um, could mean the territories. 
you know, uh, ruled by the, 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 the state and it could mean the state and in individual emperors sometimes, because I studied the transition from the Ming dynasty to the next dynasty, which was governed by uh, a non Han Chinese. Uh, so this question about, so sometimes the specific um, individual emperors were even understood to be the symbols of a dynasty. So it was, there were many meanings, um, uh, you know, um, to this. Sure, sure. But so a, a modern historian, say, writing in English could say that maybe some foreign army invaded the dynasty, like? Yes. Oh, definitely. Oh. And it, it kind of helps that <laughs> Chinese dynasties tend to last longer than Byzantine or Roman ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, not, not, all of them, not all of them last more than a generation or two, but some of them last a very long time. Um, and so it kind of became a matter of habit to refer to China uh, during that entire span by the name of the dynasty and just call it a dynasty. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So in my context, the term empire, it, it's one of those terms that I mentioned earlier that is, well, it comes from the state that I'm studying, uh, imperium, uh, though an earlier form of it, uh, because there's no Greek equivalent of the term uh, empire. No, no clear one at any rate. Uh, Byzantines could use all kinds of terms for power, authority, whatever, you know, archi, kratos, dynastia, whatever, but they don't translate as empire in any uh, significant way. Uh, they can mean that, if, but there's no clear indication that they do. So um, it's one of those terms that in my field has it's been lying around for so long, it's just become part of the wallpaper. And as far as I know, there was never any systematic um, analytical study of what do we mean by it? Um, are there any contemporary texts that authorize its use in a specific way? It's just part of the basic vocabulary of how we refer to this state, empire. And no one had, as far as I know, no one had sort of problematized it. What does it mean? The problem is that as, as far as I can tell now, empire is a modern English word. <laughs> I mean, it is, right? And yeah. I, I would say that something like Star Wars, the movies, right, where the empire replaces the Republic, <laughs> you know, is, um, corresponds to most people, more people's understanding of what empire means than any late Roman legal understanding of imperium. Uh, so, I thought, no, wait a minute, we use the term empire to mean something today. Does it correspond to how we use it for Byzantium? And the answer was no, generally not. We call Byzantium an empire because of the philology of titles. Uh, so that even at the very, very end, when, quote, the empire consists of a city, a couple islands, and the Peloponnese, <laughs> which you can drive around in like a day and a half, um, you still call its ruler the emperor and it the empire, but with a lot of hand-wringing about how this is not really an empire anymore. Yeah, well, what is it then? And anyway, and so what I did was I, I used the term empire in the way in which it's used by most modern historians and sociologists, political scientists, as a relationship of domination from one by one group over a bunch of others and the mechanisms by which the differences between them are are maintained uh, 
usually in an exploitative way for the benefit of the metropole, or uh, those differences are gradually abolished, as happened in the ancient Roman Empire through the universal extension of citizenship and the the uh, the, the transition of power holders from Rome to the provinces. That happened also, and 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 so those differences and their, the mechanisms by which they were maintained or not should be at the center of our study of empire, if we mean empire in its English sense. If we don't mean it in its English sense, then I would require someone, an interlocutor in this discussion to tell me in what sense it's being used. Because if we're merely translating the title of the monarch that way, that doesn't get us very far. Um, we can talk about how the the monarchy was theorized by, you know, court orators and people like that. And, and that, that has been worked over, but there's not any interesting analytical concept of empire in all of that. Uh, so, yeah, I guess all I'm doing is calling for some terminological clarity and, and definition in, in areas that have, in, you know, whose vocabulary has just been used so, um, for so long and, um, in, in so um, casually that they almost become invisible. Like I can't write about Byzantium without referring to the emperor, but that wasn't really his title. His title was Vasileps, which in Greek means king. Um, clearly they didn't think they were the same as any other king, that they were kind of superior, but, but there's still no study that tells me how they express that superiority exactly. Yeah. Oh, great. There are just so many things that we take for granted, not only as, um, you know, as individuals, but also as like scholars. We just take them for granted for such a long time. And uh, actually, when, it, when we try to think about them in history and um, uh, what they meant, uh, we were surprised by how little <laughs> we know and how little, how much more we need to examine to really understand you know reconstruct the, the past yeah and now that i've been reading more chinese history um in in, in part in preparation for reading xiao yun's book I, I was struck by how often grappling with the fundamental terms with which to describe things is a is a problem which is a good thing like it needs to be um, but there is this problem of having to use all these Greek and Latin terms that may or may not match up, right? It, it, is that done? Is, is that done because the Western traditions of historiography just naturally reached for their own toolkit in writing Chinese history, or is there a deliberate attempt to interface with a Western um, uh, history? Well. Uh I guess uh, uh, to to some degree, there's some cultural imperialism involved, right? Where uh, Western concepts are seen as more scientific or more modern, and therefore uh, Chinese historians felt compelled uh, to to adopt them, especially the Marxist ones. Uh, now, uh, but uh, yeah, at the same time, there is this difficulty, which is that in the Chinese vocabulary, uh, the classical Chinese vocabulary, many of these concepts are not named. Uh, they don't talk about ethnicity 
uh, they don't really talk about race. There isn't even a word for culture, as I think I sort of explained in the book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, there isn't a good fit. But at the same time, there aren't kind of natural equivalents in Chinese that we could easily settle on. Um, I do try to kind of identify one or two quite equivalents in Chinese, which uh, I think uh, better help us understand what the, the conceptual framework for the Chinese of that time would have been. Uh, but sometimes it really is just a, a matter of convenience. We, we cannot kind of easily find Chinese concepts that are uh, kind, of known, kind of obviously more useful than the Western ones. Uh, so, uh, so we kind of, kind of latch onto certain Western ideas like culture or nation or ethnicity as a way to explain what we're seeing in the Chinese case. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, the kind of following up on what uh, the Ying was saying about the things that we take for granted um, as historians until we kind of realize that, the, that that's a problem. Uh, I found that uh, uh, kind of thinking comparatively uh, has helped me to take, take less for granted over time. Uh, uh, Anthony mentioned kind of reading in Chinese history to sort of prepare for um, reading my book and also for this conversation that we're having. Uh, I've, you know, been reading in, in Byzantine history for quite a number of years now. Um, and uh, I actually sort of stumbled upon Anthony's earlier book, Ethnography Before Antiquity, um, back when I was in California finishing up uh, grad school. And, uh, you know, it was, that was kind of like a revelation to me. Uh, many of the, the, the questions and the problems that I've been grappling with the, with the Chinese case, it, it was the first time I realized that uh, if you look at Byzantium, actually some of the answers um, are not that difficult to find. Uh, because here is a field where people have started actually interrogating those questions that are still not properly addressed or even recognized in the field of Chinese history. It's interesting you should mention the ethnography book. I, I, I felt it was it was closer to what you're doing in, in this book in, in that it was a much it was more an intellectual reading of, of how foreigners are talked about and for what often domestic political purposes. Right. Right. Like it, even for barbarians, like as I mentioned earlier with Justinian, you have discourses of the internal barbarian, um, even as a, as a kind of it happens rarely, but it does happen. The, the inner barbarian, right, that you have. Mm -hmm. um, so one, one of the things that uh, kind of, I think, continues to constrain my field is that uh, we don't pay enough attention to rhetoric as rhetoric. Now, maybe those of us who work in literature uh, and not history uh, are better at that. But, uh, you know, in Chinese uh, culture, uh, elite culture, there's always been, I think, ever since Confucius, perhaps, uh, this suspicion of rhetoric as being morally unsound or morally, morally suspect. And so uh, a lot of rhetorical pronouncements that, you know, if I think someone who studies, you know, Greek or Roman history would immediately recognize as being rhetorical. Um, in Chinese, uh, in the field of Chinese history tend to be taken at face value. Uh, and then we begin to get into these debates about this person is xenophobic, this person is racist, this person is cosmopolitan or universalist, right? Rather than saying his rhetoric is xenophobic, his rhetoric is universalist, but you know what he really thinks, who knows? Right? Well, I think, I think Xiaoyun successfully showed that it was understood to be rhetoric. Uh, and that's what I found in my own research on Ming history and political history. 
like that's how people understood it and used it. But we modern historians sometimes, you know, choose not to. Right. We take our we take our sources too seriously, right? The people at that time knew that this was a rhetorical game, but uh, we don't take it as a game because we are, uh, you know, so empirical in our approach, and we think that uh, these people must be saying exactly what they think, so we can use them as evidence that the Chinese thought this way or that way. Um, and I think the reason why the uh, folks who work on Greek or Roman history are less prone to that is because they recognize that rhetoric has been such a big part of political life um, in their civilizations or their traditions yeah. um, all along. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think um, it was funny that um, after I suggested we, uh, two of you have this conversation um, at the beginning, we thought it was a, it would be a big, bigger conversation in person uh, with a bigger audience um, at OSU. Um, and then I looked up your bibliography and realized, Xiaoyun, you uh, actually cited Anthony. Um, so I thought, oh, so I did something right. Um, that's a very interesting um, discovery. For right. me. You, you, you see, I, I, I uh, am a fan of Anthony's work. And I've been here in Granville, which is not too far from, from Columbus and OSU. And I've been wondering, you know, might I ever get to meet this uh, this person whose work I've been admiring. All right, now you're embarrassing me, and I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna edit all this out. <laughs> right, and, and uh, so you know, like you know, Ying's invitation to 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 us to actually have this conversation was really uh, uh, kind of like a godsend for me. Uh, to Seriously, um, uh, yeah. well, I think our uh, sentiments are all sincere and 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 true. Uh, but 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 seriously, um, I think. This is just another example of why we should have more conversation, um, you know, like this um, between fields. And uh, even if we feel like we're studying, you know, contexts that are so re removed from um, each other's, uh, there's just tremendous intellectual value in, in doing this. So I guess um, it's, it's been a fascinating conversation. But I wanted to ask you if you are taking some of the questions about ethnicity or some other key terms you mentioned um, in this book uh, to your next uh, project, your current research project. And, and if you wish, you can share a little bit with us. So uh, I've been thinking a lot about writing something like a sequel to this book. Um, that sort of takes up uh, later periods, maybe from the, the 13th century to, this, to the 18th, right? Like the 1200s to the 1700s. Uh, so as you can see, I don't, I don't specialize in a certain period, although I've tended to work in Tang and Song for um, quite, quite some time. Uh, but I kind of like, like, I like, I like to take questions wherever they lead me. And sometimes that kind of takes me into unfamiliar territory, right, even into Ming history, which is your field, uh, and which I haven't done much work in. Uh, but the, the concept that I kind of really want to try and use and grapple with uh, in this future project is supremacism. Oh, uh, okay. Right, this, uh, and of course, you know, that, that has a ton of baggage. And right now I'm in a conversation with uh, a scholar in the field of medieval uh, European literature who's trying to urge me or encourage me to use the concept of race, right? And she says, you know, what you mean when you say supremacism is what we mean when we, when in critical race theory when we say race, right? And they define race much more broadly than uh, maybe um, other fields might tend to do. Uh, but really, uh, supremacism, uh, Chinese supremacism as this, 
uh, ideology that assumes that the Chinese are superior and that therefore um, things follow from that, which is that if because the Chinese are superior, they are entitled to dominate the world and the world is better off when they do so. Whereas because barbarians are inferior, they have no right to dominate the Chinese or dominate the world. And when they do, the world basically just descends into chaos. Right? Now this, I think, uh, becomes this ideology, this assumption uh, becomes much more prominent in the period sort of immediately after uh, the one covered in this book, uh, especially among the neo-Confucians who are often kind of, I think, misread as universalists who think that all human beings pretty much have the same moral nature and therefore can all be civilized and good. Uh, you know, you, I think you, you'll be surprised how many neo-Confucians try to sort of wiggle out of that sort of commitment to universal kind of moral potential by saying that barbarians actually are not really human, so they don't have full human potential for kind of moral perfection, unlike the Chinese were the, real, were the only really human people out there. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to kind of conceptualize uh, a future project that uh, uses supremacism, maybe even race, if I can kind of like uh, convince myself that it's useful um, as of understanding how this idea of the Chinese as being a superior people or superior civilization um, kind of plays out in the discourse of, uh, you know, geopolitics and, um, you know, power relations within the empire, for example. Well, I, I would love to see you um, expanding the time tourism to of your study to uh, Ming, um, the Ming Dynasty, because you know it, it, it. They had this Mongol occupation and a dynasty prior to the Ming, and then during the Ming period, they engaged in you know other countries in the first phase of globalization. So I, I would be really, really curious to see what you find in this sort of you know the changes in the sense of uh, uh, superiority and 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 what justified that sense of uh, superiority. That would be fantastic. Sure, and I, and I kind of hope to learn something from you about how to start dealing with Ming, Ming sources. Well, I, I studied the center. <laughs> well, Xiaoyun, that is a fascinating project um, and, uh, and sort of very timely in all kinds of ways. And, you know, I was thinking while you were saying that, that, yeah, my subjects, the Byzantines, also thought themselves to be superior uh, in all kinds of ways, in a, in a sad sort of way. Like, <laughs> I mean by that, they like looked at the world around them and sort of shook their head. And, <laughs> you know, they didn't have this idea really of doing anything about it <laughs> for the most part, for the most part. The, the, the good thing about Byzantine supremacist thinking is that it also led them to sort of disdain other people for the most part. And if you went to them and asked them to help you out, you know, give me some culture so that I can be elevated, they, they'll send somebody. But otherwise, they just, ugh. anyway, that's a, it's, a, it's a very different configuration of supremacism, but they expressed it a lot at the court, then went home and did nothing about it. Um, anyway, <laughs> well, okay. We can we can talk some more about that. <clears throat> so now, was that was that due to uh, well, you know I, maybe I could kind of ask you a question about that. Uh, uh, was that due to their belief that uh, you know the world was going to 
end at some point. And so, you know, everything's going to be okay. Uh, we don't have to do anything to kind of restore our supremacy in the world because, you know, this world isn't, isn't forever anyway. It's possible. I don't know. So the difficulty in, in, in Byzantium is in trying to match up uh, texts that are mostly like literary entertainment about the end of the world and state po court policy. Like they don't actually intersect at any point where you can say, aha, here, this text led to this, right, policy being implemented or something. And those texts, uh, like apocalyptic texts, they don't describe the end times as particularly pleasant. Um, and yeah, there would be a lot of wars and all this and the other thing. If your question is like, did they assume a passive position because the expectation is that God's plan would bring this about ultimately one way or another and we just wait for it? Uh, it's possible. I, I don't think this has ever been studied, like the, the mechanics, the, the, the gears of the thinking and, and state policy. But I'll just give you another example. That there, the Byzantines didn't really send out missions to convert people. They could have, but they didn't. They, they, they replied to petitions. You know, people said, uh, kings, nearby kids, neighboring kings said, now I want to convert. Can you, can you help me out and send some people? And they okay, we'll send some people. Reluctantly sometimes, like, ugh. <sighs> like the, the gospel really isn't for you people, but okay. <laughs> So it's kind of like they felt that orthodoxy was too good to be shared, right? Uh, that Sometimes at least they had that in their favor, even if they didn't have very much else. Uh, it's kind of like, I, I kind of, I'm seeing the same thing uh, in, in my context. Uh, you know, the assumption for a long time was that the Chinese were really enthusiastic about making other peoples into Chinese, just like them, right? The cynicizing or civilizing impulse is supposed to be really strong. In fact, you know, there isn't very much talk about synthesizing foreigners at all. In fact, it often leads to uh, this idea that they're becoming like us leads to insecurity and anxiety about, you know, what, what's wrong with us? Why are they catching up? Uh, so uh, I think there was, in fact, uh, a strong resistance to kind of civilizing other peoples, uh, unless you could control them at the same time. If they were, if they were colonized by you and, you know, you dominated them, then you could basically try and make them uh, kind of improve them morally and make them more civilized. But if they were independent and had their own empire, then, you know, try, if they got more like you, then the basis of your supremacy would be ever more in question. Uh, so, uh, you know, synthesization was not a uh, uh, kind of straightforward good thing in the minds of many of these yeah. folks. Yeah, that, that's right. And the, 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 um, the exceptions in the Byzantine case are people who, who are settled in strategically sensitive areas that the state wanted to absorb, like Greece, right? Um, some, some other parts of the Balkans, some places in, in Asia Minor. But like there, you see both a strategy and a policy of assimilation and so forth. But those are the, like the core territories. Beyond that, yeah. So when foreign rulers start behaving in, in Byzantine, like Charlemagne taking on what to the Byzantines were their own titles and trying to behave, you know, he's, he's building up his own capital at Aachen to look more Byzantine. They, they're trying to aspire to imitate Constantinople. The Byzantines don't like that at all. <laughs> no. Um, right. So, I, I remember, uh, you know, reading in your um, ethnography before, after antiquity book about how 
you know, the fact that uh, let's say the the card of the Bulgars becomes uh, becomes orthodox uh, does not kind of give the uh, Romans, the Byzantines, any reason to see him as kind of equal to themselves or being the you know any less barbarian. Right? So this idea right. of calling people barbarians it doesn't depend on whether they're orthodox or Christians or not. Uh, they kind of like stick to it because. Uh, being being Roman is partly defined by being able, having the right to call everyone else a barbarian. Exactly. And so it was great that they converted to orthodoxy. That's a good thing. But they're never going to be like us. And the, the Byzantines could always fall back and did fall back on other cultural criteria like the Greek language and Greek rhetoric and and ancient education that they had and nobody else did. So they thought, I mean, the Arabs had it and the Byzantines realized that after a while. But anyway... So you could always fall back on that as the criterion of your of your superiority. And, oh, and the Anthony, fact that they chose, you... yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. We're... So are you continuing to explore ethnicity um, in your current project, or you're moving on to something else? So yeah. Um, so my current project is a new big history of Byzantium uh, from beginning to end. And it's not going to focus on ethnicity. Um, you know, ethnicity is one topic that I happen to have worked on. I don't think it's necessarily the most important one. It's not the the key to understanding Byzantine history. Um, but eventually, I do plan on writing a book that will form a, a kind of uh, the end of the trilogy, as it were, the, the other books being the Republic and Roman land. And that book will, it will not be about ethnicity as such. It will actually be about governmentality. Um, oh, and nice. a focus on how the institutions of the state create subject and sustain subjectivities. So ultimately, ethnicity is a part of it because it it answers that uh, a necessary question, which is how are these ethnicities sustained for so long? Um, and in the in the Byzantine and in the Roman case in particular, I don't think that this identity is independent of institutions of social and political institutions that hold it together and, and th this might be a difference between the roman tradition and the chinese tradition that is in the roman tradition there are all kinds of cultural markers of romanness but ultimately there's also the criterion of belonging to a particular polity uh, which is a legal identity and it comes with a legal structure a very particular one um, which remained i think a, a kind of nucleus around which the other things accreted. And so that book is going to be about institutions and government. So, so it, so it sounds like your trilogy, uh, you know, it's, it, it's kind of basically going to add up to a redefinition of uh, what being Byzantine Roman was, right? So uh, Byzantine Republic was uh, arguing that uh, the, this state is less an empire than a republic. Um, and the uh, Roman land is that it's less an empire than a national state? Um, right. so, so, sort of, yeah. No, so the, um, the Republic is about the, the nature of the political sphere. Um, that is how larger numbers of people of the, in the polity participated actively in its politics. Right. If you look, if you step outside the court, which historians traditionally focus on and look at the street that there was... Um, and Roman land is about the ethnicity, and the third book is going to be about the institutions that held all of this together. And I think they did. And when the institutions started collapsing, the whole thing just eventually dissipated. 
So when would you date the collapse of the institutions that had basically sustained it for so long? Oh, it took a long time, but um, they really, they, you can see them starting to break down in the later 12th century, like right before the Fourth Crusade, and that comes along and makes a mess of it. I think they could have pulled it together. They often did. After that, it's, it's a very difficult struggle to pull it back together, and the institutions are, they, they tend to, to muddle through rather than like like the way the US is responding to the coronavirus. You're just kind of muddling through and making a, a mess and then it gets better and then it gets worse. It's, it's like Whereas in previous times, I think that the Roman institutions that held it together, held it together pretty well. Right, that's, you know, thinking in terms of institutions is kind of interesting to me because if, uh, looking at the Chinese case, it really feels like the institutions uh, Pretty much held up until the 19th century and then things started to go really wrong. Um, yes, yes, yes. So it, I get a sense that just, you know, based on what I've heard about your next projects, I, I feel like there will be a sequel to what uh, we just um, did yes. today. Um, yeah, so... We'll do this again. Um, yeah, yeah. So this is, um, do you feel this is, we covered what? Okay. Yes, yeah, and... and it, it's a bit longer than the usual episode that, that that I do, but that's fine because we have we have two people with with. Uh, yeah, ideas. well, I thought you could always edit edit um, the the content, uh, <laughs> but um, but I thought I would just allow the conversation to kind of flow naturally and then yeah, yeah, yeah. decide what what to keep and what the audience would like to hear. But um, yeah, but it would be uh, fantastic to have another conversation once you develop your project. The next projects more and and hopefully by then we'll be able to do it in person <laughs> yes right yeah uh hopefully we, we will um, and comparative conversations are so much fun so yeah we sh shouldn't just stop at this one absolutely though though this one will have a larger audience <laughs> yes true 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 yeah mm. yeah all right so Thank you both, Ying, Xiaoyong. Sorry, I couldn't show my face, but uh, three immortals, that counts uh, almost as, as, strong, as strong as Ying. You are a vision <laughs> of paradise. Yeah, okay. Yeah, thanks right. so much for, for this. Thank you, Ying. Thank you, Anthony. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Take care.